you've got your Bible and you'd like to read along this morning, we're in Hosea chapter 11 as we work our way through uh, this, the first of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, which we have been in now for several months, been enjoying what the Lord has been giving to us through these faithful words. Uh, before I forget, because I often do at the end of service, um, we do have some food left over from our food bank distribution this Saturday. We got 1,600 pounds of bananas donated to us from Costco this week, and some of them now live in our garbage can down the hill, but we got a lot of really good ones too. So there's some fresh, almost fresh green bananas up in the um, kitchen area, so make sure you go and grab some of those, if they would be a blessing to your family. There's also a bunch of loaves of bread, both sliced and the baguettes in the refrigerator as well. So um, help yourself to that after uh, service. And don't forget to uh, be quick to invite people to our food pantry. There's a lot of folks in our neighborhood who are struggling, who could really use that help. There are people among us who take advantage of that help. And so uh, it's a great way for us to connect to people who have a need that they can feel, uh, that they can feel in their bodies, a hunger. Uh, we tell them about our food pantry, and then we also are there on Saturday mornings able to share some of the gospel with them and sit and pray with them and, and show them that this is a church that wants to be a blessing to both their body and to their soul. So we would encourage you to remember to invite people. So we are in Hosea chapter 11. But before we get there, um, there's a popular meme floating around. Most of you guys know what a meme is. It's just sort of like a, a joke in picture format. I'm sure you've seen some version of this meme somewhere, somehow. The basic point of which is that we all ought to be holding out for a passionate, focused, committed love from someone. Uh, the formula is well known, though the characters might vary from meme to meme. Uh, here's some examples of it. Some of you know Shia LaBeouf, famous actor, who uh, most people know is pretty much in love with his art form. He loves his, his work and is a, a little self-absorbed. Somebody watched him at one of the premieres of his movie and took some secret pictures of him on the front row just eyeing his acting and being very much so impressed with himself. So there's a meme out of him looking at himself watching his, his debut and, and it says, find someone who looks at you like Shia LaBeouf looks at himself. <laughs> there's another one if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, maybe sci-fi is your thing. Find someone who cherishes you like Gollum cherishes that ring, right? His precious Although, don't do that. That's basically idolatry. That's not to be uh, recommended from the pulpit of this church. Uh, there's a third. What about this one? Find someone who loves you like Dwayne The Rock Johnson loves the gym, right? Spends all his time there, if you've seen how uh, ripped that guy is. So there's a number of these. You get the idea. We want to be loved. We want to be cherished, to be important to someone in the same pattern of some of the most well-known loves that we have been exposed to in our culture. And there are hundreds of these, but frankly... If meme makers wanted to set some kind of comparative standard, hold out for this kind of love, frankly, they all aimed way too low. Looking to scripture, I cannot imagine a more exemplary, desirable love than the love that God the Father has for Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Look at Mark chapter 9. It says, a cloud overshadowed them. This is speaking of the transfiguration of Jesus where his divine form is revealed in some measure to three of the apostles. A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. God showing a great care for the son and imploring others 
to love him as the Father loves him. Matthew 3, 17, this is after the baptism of Jesus. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Father is not ashamed to declare his great love to his son Jesus. John 5, 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. There is such a care and a nurturing heart from God the Father towards God the Son, that he doesn't leave him out of anything. His plans are shared entirely with the Son. John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He has withhold none good, no good thing from Jesus Christ. This is not a love that begins at the incarnation of Jesus either. The Gospel of John declares that Jesus Christ, also known as the Word of God, existed with God as a member of the Trinity from the very beginning of all things. And from the very beginning, God the Father loved God the Son. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me. Remember, he has withheld nothing from his Son. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world, says Jesus. The Father has always, ever loved the Son. So this love that the Father has for the Son has existed eternally. It is literally older than time. And when we consider the character and the perfection of God, we can surmise just how special this love between the Father and the Son is. They have never, because of their perfect nature, they've never been at odds with each other. They share one will. What the Father wants, the Son wants. So there has never been conflict. Can you imagine that? A relationship where there is never conflict? Some of you are like, I don't really want a relationship like that. I like my conflict, right? I enjoy iron sharpening iron. I'm looking at some of you in the back there, right? <laughs> but think about the blessing of being of completely like mind with another. The father and the son have never cut each other off. They've never undermined each other. They never made each other look bad in front of anyone else because they are at 100% peace in their will. They've never taken one another for granted have they? They've never, because of their perfect nature, they've never exploited one another for some kind of personal advantage. How many people who say they have loved you have then turned around and used you for their own good at your detriment? That's never happened between the Father and the Son. Not one time have the Father and the Son misunderstood each other. That happens in my house all the time. But not between the Father and the Son. They are perfect perfectly cohesive in the way they think. They've never broken a promise to one another. They've never betrayed a trust. They've never let love for anything else come between their love for one another. Not one of the weaknesses that commonly leads to the corruption or downfall of love in between humans has ever threatened the bond of love that exists eternally between the Father and the Son. And I want you to rest assured that the Holy Spirit also shares in this infinite priceless love as well. But for simplicity's sake, I have chosen to focus on the love between the Father and the Son this morning. Now, having considered the uniqueness of that steadfast, enduring, and perfect love, I want you now, in awe and wonder, to meditate on the words that are shared to us in John 15, where Jesus addresses his disciples as he prepares them for the work of salvation that he's about to accomplish through his death, 
His exaltation, His burial, and His resurrection. It says in John 15, 9-11, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father has loved me, we just spent some time marveling at the perfect love shared between the Father and the Son. As He has loved me, says Jesus, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy might not just be better, might not just be good enough, but full, that there might be a fullness of joy in you. And look again at John 17, 26, where Jesus again says, I made known to them your name. He's praying to the Father here. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There is no greater love than the love that the Father has for the Son. And if you are a disciple of Jesus, that love is yours, Christian. If you are a Christian, you've been loved by the God of the universe with a covenantal love that has no rival in the entirety of the created universe. Think about the ways that God has impacted your life by way of this redeeming love. What has Yahweh done to make you something new? Something that you were not before he came to you and interrupted your life. By the intrusion of the gospel into your life of sin and and independence from God, you've been made to see your sin for what it truly is. No longer can you deceitfully convince yourself that what is wretched about you isn't so bad after all. God has exposed it. He has told the truth to you and brought what was hidden out into the light. And thank the, thank the Lord that he has done this for you. That might not seem like a gift at first, but that is medicine for your soul. He loved you so much that he exposed what you tried desperately to hide from everyone else. What needed to be dealt with more in your life than abiding sin in your heart. Nothing. By it, you had crippled yourself By sin, you had shrunk the joy of your relationships. By sin, you had contributed to the degradation of the world that you live in. Why is the world a crooked place? Because of the sin exists there. And I'm not just talking about the sin out there. I'm talking about the sin in you. You have contributed to the dying state of creation because you also carry the stain of sin. God's world tells us that the whole creation groans as a result of man's sin. And the darkness of your personally corrupt heart has contributed to that. But God in His great love for you did not leave you in this corrupted, poisoned state. But if you are a believer, He has shown you what is broken in you. And He has also had the mercy to show you that you don't have the power to fix it by yourself. Because He knew you'd try. He knew you want to do it on your own, apart from him, and he knew, you that he, would, he, would, he knew that you would fail at it. By your sin, you had sealed your fate as an enemy of God. You had earned his just wrath and decimated any human chance that you might have to right the ship and redeem yourself. But thankfully, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the perfect spotless lamb who was slain, he has the power to break any seal. And if your heart has experienced the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus declares that the most noble and perfect love in the universe, the love that each member of the Trinity has for each other, 
is the kind of love that Jesus is now giving to you through grace. The covenantal love of God has so many brilliant facets to it. You could gaze at it for an eternity and never know it completely. Just to name a few of them, one facet that shimmers brightly is the merciful component of God's grace to you through his love. He has not held your wretched rebellion against you, Christian. In order for that to be possible, God had to make a just and a righteous way to settle the account that you owed to him because of your sin. God is on a throne. He is above us. He has dominion and authority over us. And when we break the law, we don't just break it to our detriment or to our neighbor's detriment. We break it to the offense of the one who created the law. And so he had to make it possible for you to have your guilty record expunged. He did that by absorbing your penalty, by sending his son Jesus Christ to pay that price in your place. When he suffered and died in Calvary, it wasn't because he was a guilty man. Christ had lived a perfect life. He had absolutely fulfilled the law of God like you and I could never do. And then he gave that perfect life as the spotless sacrifice that we needed that our sins might be atoned for in full. And by doing so, he has washed you clean, Christian. He has forged a way for you to be near to God. There is no better gift giver than God. And there is no better gift than he could give you than nearness to himself. Every other gift that he could give you is secondary and inferior to the gift of you knowing who he is and being drawn near to him through his graceful love. What a wonder it is to be near to the living God through the blood of the Lamb. This is a product of his affectionate care for you, church. We have citizenship in heaven because of this love. He has granted to us a place in his kingdom. He has given to us admission into his family, which we will speak about more in a few moments. He has given you the gift of his very presence, the indwelling spirit, so that you might never be apart from God again. He has given you unlimited communication between yourself and God Almighty through prayer. That's what we're going to be preaching about in the next several Sunday nights in our evening service. You always have access to God through this means of grace now, Christian. His love for you means that he will ever be growing you in grace. Here's another facet of this brilliant and beautiful love is the fact that he doesn't just save you and leave you what you are, but he refines you and, and brings you up and makes you more like Christ so that you might better bear the image of God, which is what you were meant to do. He gives you the strength to stand for what is right. He gives you the discernment to understand the difference between what is pleasing to God and what is wicked. And his love is a covenantal love that stands on his own promise, not on your performance. How is that so radically different than the love that we see in the world? It means that he's not going to stop loving you despite the fact that your love for him will never compare to his love for you. Ever. You don't have to think about this relationship and think he's going to figure out that I'm a mess one day and he's going to leave me. I'm going to get old and ugly and he's going to leave me. I'm going to fall into some sin and he's not going to want me anymore. That's not how God loves you, church. 
He has given you a love that is entirely based on his good pleasure to love you. What a humbling reality. To those of you who do not yet trust in this mighty God, think carefully about what that love is. You've experienced a sliver of God's love even if you don't believe in God. Even if you curse his name and you're only here because someone made you come, you've experienced a sliver, a taste of God's love because you live in this world that he has made. And despite the fact that you have broken his law, he has allowed you to continue to live in this world. And he has put people and relationships around you so that you wouldn't experience a complete loneliness. And he has even restrained your own natural, natural means of sinning so that you won't destroy your life as quickly as you would if he was not involved in your life. But there are different ways that God loves. He loves everyone that he has created with a common grace, with a love that gives us life for a time and shows us patience for a time. But for the believer, there is an eternal love that is completely incorruptible, and that is the love that we speak about this morning. Once you have it, friends, appreciate it. Treat that love with care. Don't think less of it than you should And here is a profound mystery, church, and it is an embarrassing one. The Christian, though exponentially blessed by the generosity and kindness of God's love, still finds a way to take that love for granted, doesn't he? We have access to our God through prayer anywhere we are, any time of day, but we don't pray nearly as often or as sincerely as we should. Our prayers are few and far between. And when we pray... They're often, hey God, by the way, there's something else that I want beside you. Can you get it for me? We don't marvel at God's love for us and thank him for being near to us. We don't tell him, God, no no matter what's going on in my life, the fact that I still have you and am covenantly loved by you is enough for me. That's what I need. Thank you for being my God. Our prayers are weaker than they should be. We have the spirit to open our eyes to God's word and to understand the eternal things that he has written for his church. But we'd rather spend hours of our time digesting whatever entertainment is available to us on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever media outlet wants to teach us things contrary to the way of God. We've been promised an inheritance fit for princes and princesses. And this inheritance is being stored up securely for us, not by our goodness, but by the strength and power of the God who loves us. And yet we cannot stop pinning ads for all the disposable overpriced junk that we think will finally bring us a better sense of contentment when we can finally afford to buy them for ourselves. Or even worse, to finance them for ourselves. We have a materialistic way of looking at the world instead of realizing that we should never thirst again because we have this love that is superior to anything that the world has to offer. How's this happen? How do we let it happen? For those of you who wear glasses, and I don't normally, and everyone's freaking out about it today, um, have you ever put your glasses up on your head for safekeeping, right? Just for a minute. And then you became so accustomed to the small amount of weight on your head that you forgot that they were there and you feared you had lost them, and you look around everywhere for those glasses, high and low, you turn your house upside down before one of your loving children says, hey, Dad, they're on your head, right? 
in some ways, the love of God is like that to us. We become so accustomed to the amazing weight of God's love that we begin to live our lives taking it for such granted that we act like it's not even there anymore. And we function in such a way as if it's not always constantly coming to bear upon the life of the believer. And so we have come to chapter 11 of Hosea. This is one of my favorite sections of the entire book. As here Yahweh reminds his covenant people of the ways that he has acted towards them in love. In this chapter, excluding the very last verse of the chapter, which I believe really better belongs in chapter 12, so we're going to lump it together with chapter 12 next week. This chapter breaks down into four major movements of the scripture here. The first is verses 1 through 4, where we reflect on Yahweh's covenantal love. Secondly, verses 5 through 7, reveal to us in a shocking contrast the betrayal of Israel towards their God in light of his amazing love. Thirdly, verses 8 and 9 are going to show to us this tender picture of Yahweh's mighty compassion despite Israel's betrayal that was described in verses 5 through 7. And then fourthly, the prophetic sign of the Messiah who will one day call God's people back to him is revealed to us in verses 10 and 11. So let's take a moment and pray, and then we're going to read through and process each of these four sections one section at a time. Holy God, we come before you, Father, aware of the fact that your love is so unique and holy. We cannot compare it accurately to human love because there is no comp. There is no standard that even holds a candle to the standard of your love for yourself and your love for your people. But we want to know it better, God. And we want to cherish it the way that we should. And so I ask that here this morning as we look at the old covenant people who lived in the northern kingdom during the time of Hosea, that we would recognize that even within their failings and the tragedy of their fall, that there is still evidence of your amazing grace and your covenant promises which must be kept. And so give us hearts and minds that are paying close attention, that are tuned in to what you would teach us this morning. And may your Holy Spirit have full reign in us as you disciple your people and grow us to be more like Christ. And we pray this in his perfect name. Amen. Hosea chapter 11, beginning of verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. This first section of the 11th chapter causes us to reflect on Yahweh's covenantal love for his people. And so we begin a look back of sorts. Hosea says, when Israel was a child, and in saying this, he means that when Israel was only in the earliest stages of becoming a distinct nation, when they had little strength, 
when they knew very little about their God. Their culture was barely even formed and was largely developing at that time. Back when they were still almost infantile, Yahweh was loving them. At this formative time, Yahweh played a pivotal role in nurturing his children, in providing for their needs, in loving them with a kind of godly love, playing the role not just of a mentor or an advisor, but the role of a father to his very own offspring. And if those opening words are somewhat familiar to you, it might be because they're quoted in the book of Matthew chapter 2, where they're mentioned as a prophetic sign that points forward to Jesus. When Jesus was born, wise men who had anticipated the coming of the Messiah recognized the phenomenon and came to pay homage to this baby king. King Herod was aware of the prophecy and he sought to put an end to it because it represented in his mind a threat to his authority over the people there. And so he decreed that all the Jewish males under the age of two years should be rounded up and put to death in the region of Nazareth. And an angel warned Joseph of this threat in order to protect his family. Then Joseph opted to move to Egypt until the death of King Herod a few years later when he relocated from Egypt to the town of Nazareth. Hence Matthew's recitation of this verse in Hosea. Matthew counts this as one of the many prophetic details that Yahweh had revealed about the nature of the Messiah's coming through Old Testament scripture. For this reason, commentator Joshua Moon suggests that verse 1 of chapter 11 might actually be the most easily recognized verse in the whole book of Hosea, simply because it's quoted by Matthew in chapter 2, and we read it every year at Christmas time. Yahweh has made Israel to be his covenant people, and he has determined to be their God. But the bond is not simply a contractual arrangement. It represents a connectivity of great significance. God is to be their God in the way that a father is to be a parent to his children. Israel, by covenant, has become a part of God's eternal family. We also see this way of thinking about the covenant in the earlier text of Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. This is where Moses has been told by God through this specter, this image of the burning bush, that he is to go and redeem the people of Israel and bring them out of the bondage which has enslaved them for centuries. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I, Yahweh, will kill your firstborn son. And so here, very early on, we see this language being employed where the covenant people are to think about themselves in this way, that God is not just a dignitary over them or a military leader, but he is the one who has brought them life. And they, through their connection, this familial connection, represent him. Why does Hosea make use of this father-son dynamic? There are many reasons. As parents bring their own children into being, so too did Yahweh bring the nation of Israel into being. The national concept of Israel hadn't even existed until God himself forms it and creates it for his purposes. Israel was not a national people. Abraham was not an Israelite. The Israelites sprang from one man, Israel, or Abraham rather. Abraham and Sarah are given a promise by God that though they are childless, God will give them a progeny, he will give them a child, and then that promised child 
through his offspring will become many nations to glorify God through Abraham and Sarah's seed. And so he made them, he birthed them as a people. As Yahweh is the one who formed Israel, there is a great responsibility for Israel to honor and to cherish their God, for they owe their identity to Yahweh. They owe him reverence, obedience, appreciation, and appropriate familial love that a child is to give to their parents. Furthermore, their identity is wrapped up in Yahweh's identity. Much like you might walk through the courtyard of our church in between services and say, blonde-haired little Nick, blonde-haired little Nick, blonde-haired little Nick, no-haired, big Nick. My kids look a lot like me, right? They bear in some way my image. So too is Yahweh supposed to bear the image of the Father who is over them. Part of their charge as a nation is to represent God to the unbelieving people around them. Show the world that Yahweh is holy and set apart and unlike any God. And to do that by means of obedience to the law and by means of the unique way of life that God has given to them through cultural mandates. But through sin and through the fall of man, mankind has dropped the ball in that regard. It is not as though human beings no longer bear the image of God. They certainly do. And if you want to learn more about that, come to Sunday school. At 9 o'clock, we've been spending a lot of time speaking about what it means to be bearing the image of God. Really good stuff there. Man still bears the image of God even in their sin, but they do not do it well. So this special people, Israel, would be a nation of individuals who by God's guidance and direction begin to restore that image-bearing function that was fundamentally part of God's original design for mankind. When people looked at the way that Israel conducted themselves as a nation, there should have been plenty of reasons for them to think, wow, like father, like son, this nation has a kind of morality and integrity and character and order that clearly shows that they are a reflection of the God, Yahweh, whom they worship. We see that in little snippets, like when Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the power of God in Daniel, and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. We see it in little snippets. But sadly, we don't see it in the overall history of Israel. One last point, of course, Yahweh, as the father of Israel, part of the reason why Hosea uses this metaphor is that Yahweh has a responsibility to his children as well. He is to provide for his people. He is to protect his people. He is to teach and mature his people, and even discipline them if they need that as his sons and daughters. These are all functions that flow from his loving affection and familial connection to the nation of Israel. So this youth use of familiar imagery here is powerful in the same way that the image of Hosea's covenantal marriage to Gomer, who was unfaithful to him, provided for us in the first three chapters of this book a powerful image of how shocking the northern kingdom's infidelity towards their God was. God is appealing to the relational unions that carry the most significance to the human experience, husband to wife, father to children. He's building a reference point to help his reader come closer to the understanding of the magnitude of God's love, along with the, the scandal and the horror of Israel turning away from that perf perfect love. Yahweh's love for them is displayed in the way that he cares for their needs, and treats them like his own children, but not because they had earned this kind of loving treatment. We would do well to remember Deuteronomy 7, where it says in verses 6 through 8, For you are a people 
holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Now pay close attention here. It says, out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. But it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Christian, if you are a believer today, it's not because you shined and God said, I need that one in my team and he picked you out of the rest and made you one of his own. No more so than Israel was made a nation out of almost nothing. God created them not because they were better than the rest did he make them his own, but because he desired to display his power in them. And time and time again, we see Israel overcoming challenges from greater, wiser, stronger, more powerful nations because God himself is the one who is on their side. And here's a great distinction between godly love and the way that man tends to love. Man loves for what he might receive from someone else in return or for what he has received from someone in the past. But God's love is not dependent upon either of those things. God loves simply because he is love. And because in his perfect will, he has chosen to express that perfect love by loving a people unto himself forever. God's saving love does not come to the Christian because we have earned it. God's love is not an economic transaction. He is not loving you as payment for your devotion. I hope not because our devotion is weak, isn't it? We could not afford much of his love if it were purchased in a holy store of some kind. He is not loving you in exchange for your future worship either. He is loving you because he is love itself and he has chosen in his infinite wisdom and righteousness to display his great love by the way that he loves you. Yet even within this reflection of God's amazing love for his people, in verses one through four, there is still this splinter of their obstinance stuck within that loving memory towards Yahweh. We read in verse two, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So even within the beautiful parts of Israel's history and the times when he can look back affectionately at his children, he sees already this tendency for them to turn away from him, to desire something beside him. So God is not simply waxing nostalgic on the past. He's not letting the memory of the good old days conceal the painful condition of the present. He continues to deal with the present rebellious state of the northern kingdom. But to do that properly, he must remind them of the powerful covenantal bond that exists between them and him, a bond as powerful as family. And so having shed, shed light upon that bond, in verses 5 through 7, we progress. These verses are designed to point out the shock of Israel's betrayal of God in light of his amazing love for them. It says in verse 5, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall raise against their city, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their counsels. Samaria's king, oops, wrong verse. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out the Most High, he shall not rise, uh, raise them up at all. And so the northern kingdom has turned their back on the familial bond that should have been dear to them 
By way of ignoring the covenant, they've failed to represent Yahweh well. They've earned from their father all the punishments that come from that kind of a stubborn rebellion against the king. This is of no small significance to us, friends, and yet it does not mean that God has forsaken the Israelites. It does not mean that he has annulled their covenant and sent them back to the slavery of Egypt out of which he saved them. No, there is trouble, but it's a progressive trouble. There will be a grievous punishment for the national sins of the northern kingdom, but it will not erase God's history with them. It will not make null and void his power to save them from Egypt. Rather, it will lead to a difficult time of correction, a time of harsh discipline that is necessary, that must come before there can be reconciliation and restoration of a familial peace between both the Israelites and Yahweh. Not only the Israelites in the north, by the way, but the ones in the south who will soon follow suit and they're turning away from the king. This correlation and discipline will come by way of war with the neighboring empire of Assyria. It will do great harm to Israel to be conquered by these vicious and warring people and to lose their lands and their independence will come at a great cost which will humble them. The councils mentioned in verse 6 which will play a part in the war to come refer to the ways that Israel has sought counsel outside of God's counsel. They have overlooked God's fatherly love and instead looked to other sources for protection and provision. They've looked to other cultures for direction in how they should worship and what they should do to prepare themselves for the threat of Assyria. And though God has determined to play the role of father to them, they have dishonored him to such a great degree that it will take a serious beating at the hand of their adversaries, the Assyrians, before they're going to realize the weight of their rebellion. Perhaps the part that will sting the most is what Hosea describes in chapters, or verse 7. Despite the fact that they are bent on turning away from their God, when the consequences of their actions begin to become clear, and they're suffering from the intense scorn of the cruel Assyrian armies, they will come to their senses. And in desperation, they will appeal to the God whom they had ignored for so long. But hear this, Yahweh, being a good father knows that he would do this northern kingdom no favors by rescuing them immediately and sparing them the hurt of their sin. I know that's a hard thing for some parents to recognize, but good parenting doesn't involve removing every hurt that your child gets themselves into. Sometimes good parenting means removing your hands and letting them see what it means to dishonor mother and father and to see how much that hurts an individual's life so that they might learn from experience why God commanded us to honor our mother and father. And Yahweh is saying that this is what he's going to do with the northern kingdom. He will not respond to their cries. He will not bail them out of the predicament they've gotten themselves into. There have been plenty of warnings, and they have ignored them. He has no desire to further train them to take advantage of him and take for granted the covenant bond that they should cherish. So God will not raise them up, at least not at first. Instead, he will show them what a nation reaps after they have sown years and years of iniquity. Friends, it's not easy to teach your children those hard lessons. It hurts father to see child hurt like that. And in this next section, verses 8 through 9, we see that weight on God's heart communicated to us. Before we remember, or rather before we read those verses, I, I want to share a reminder. We serve a holy God. He is unique. He's not like us. And though we were made to bear his image, it is an image so distinct from all that God has created that we as created beings can hardly grasp the depth of what God is. 
We have a tendency, though, to think of God the only way that we really know how to think of anything. We think of Him through our own perspective. And in doing so, we often make the mistake of thinking of God's attributes in the same way that we think of those attributes and characteristics as we commonly see them in man. That's a mistake because God is not a man. He is more than that. God is God. And so our minds need to be trained to think of God with an ever-present respect for the fact that He exceeds what we can be. And that we often need to think outside of our set categories of understanding if we're ever going to have room in our brains to know what God is like and to appreciate his character. One example of that is displayed in the way that we understand God and his passions or emotions. One of the classic doctrines of God that gets very little mention in modern pulpits today is the doctrine of divine impassibility. Impassibility. It might, might be a word you've never heard of before, but it is an interesting thing to think about. The, the Word of God doesn't talk explicitly about the impassibility of God. We have to arrive at it by looking at the, the overarching work of Scripture that God has given to us and by contemplating the difference of a God who knows all things and who never changes and is immutable. So the impassibility of God asserts this, that God does not have passions or emotions in the same way that a human does. God does not have passions or emotions in the same way that a human does. And some people might say, whoa, wait a minute. Doesn't God love his people? Haven't we spent so much of the sermon this morning talking about his love for man? Doesn't that mean that God does have passions and emotions? Doesn't God hate the wickedness of sin? Isn't the whole series of events leading to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ referred historically to as the passion of the Christ? How can God have no passions or emotions? Well, he does. But again, as the definition says, not in the way that you and I do. Our passions and our emotions are constantly subject to outside circumstances and influences. So if I'm preaching a sermon and one of my brothers or sisters is sitting on the row there in front of me and is constantly talking on a phone the whole time that I'm preaching. If I was a patient man, I would endure it. But I'm not. So I might get upset at that, right? That condition might cause me to have a bitterness towards that brother or sister. I might be offended by it. My emotions might rise up in me. I might say something from the pulpit inappropriate and point out that problem. I'm not saying that I would necessarily, but maybe. I'm capable of it. But I know that I am susceptible to outside circumstances that knock me off of my even keel. And every one of us would have to admit vulnerability to the same thing. Our emotions are affected by our level of fatigue, by how many different things are going on in our lives at the same time. Some of us can handle way more things at the same time than others. By how much... The outcome of our efforts has the potential to impact our future. This might, this might change the way we emotionally respond in a given situation. The playoffs are going on right now in baseball, and you have some pitchers that are amazingly good at what they do. You put them in front of the bright lights of 50,000 people in an arena when all the cards are on the table, and suddenly they can't find the strike zone because the emotions impact the way they act. They are affected by what is outside of them. God is not like that, friends. He is not subject to any outside influence. 
No fatigue exists in the person of God. He cannot get tired. He is never overwhelmed for God knows all things before it even happens. He's never shocked or surprised. God has never learned anything, so he doesn't have to fear that there's something out there he hasn't seen yet. Some piece of the puzzle that might change all his planning. That is not an issue with God. There is nothing he does not already know from eternity past. Our emotions are triggered. That's a word that gets a lot of play in the world today. God's never triggered, friends. Whatever passions God exhibits are not reactions. They are first causes. He has ordained them from the beginning of the world, so his emotions are not like our emotions, which discover and respond and often have to rediscover and then adjust the response. God always knows what is best. And so, yes, he is a God who is passionate about the truth. He passionately hates what is wicked. He stands against it. But God never emotes in a reactive way. And we cannot change the way that he feels. For the way that he feels is always right, and we cannot improve upon God. God hates because God is a God of justice. And to love what is good, one must absolutely hate that which corrupts the good or threatens to destroy it. God doesn't so much have passions as he is passionate. And everything he expresses in an emotional way comes from the core of his right being and not from the perception of how the world is playing out around him. And so with that in mind, with the fact that God is not moved one way or the other by the circumstances of life, let us look at the third section today, verses 8 through 9, which reminds us that Yahweh's mighty compassion exists despite Israel's betrayal to him. It persists, it endures. So verse 8 in chapter 11 How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath." So to be clear, according to the doctrine of impassibility and just knowing what we know of the goodness and the steadiness of God, Yahweh is not standing on a great precipice here where he is torn between two possible futures. God is not saying, oh, I I know I want to punish you because you've been so disobedient, but man, I just, I see you there with your big watery eyes and you're hurting and I just can't help myself. I've got to keep loving you. That's not what is being said of God here. But what God is communicating to us is the kind of tension that Israel creates by not responding well to the love that God has given, which is worth so much. Yes, his passion and dedication of truth and justice are engaged here in verses 8 and 9. Yes, his hatred of lies and indifference and injustice are on display. But this is not an example of God at a tipping point looking to see which way his heart will lead him in the moment, looking to see who's got the most endearing prayer that will make him have pity or not have pity. Rather, he is pointing out the surety of his covenant promises. He must certainly save those people that are his. He cannot utterly forsake those who belong to him. 
Rather, it is Israel themselves who actually hang in this tension and this balance. They don't know what to do. They are the ones who will benefit from an outside force stirring up their affectionate emotions and passions, and that's exactly what Hosea is doing to them. God, by way of the prophet, is engaging them at the emotional level that human beings operate upon. He's pricking their heart that they might better understand his love for them is far superior to any of the unfaithful loves that they've been running to and shamefully throwing themselves at over the previous decades. In order to comfort his people and ground them once again in the power of his covenant, he points back to his immovable nature and to his incorruptible promise, which he has promised Abraham that he would make a great nation to spring forth from he and Sarah. He points back to the incorruptible promise by which he promised David that from his seed, God would raise up a king who would take the throne not just for a season, but forever and ever. One who would be the king of kings and the Lord over lords. And I'm speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ. Jesus must come to save. And according to the promise, he must come through the covenant people. And he must call this covenant people back to himself by way of restoration and redemption. These things must come to pass because Yahweh has said that they will. And so that might seem as though the unanswered cries of the people mean that God has forsaken that covenant. He has surely not. Yahweh has not abandoned the people in the north. In fact, there are still some there who call upon his name and desire to restore their obedience to the covenant. And these he will not utterly cut off, but will chasten them with a time of great exile before finally calling them back into restored fellowship with himself. The reference in verse 8 to Zeboim and Adma make this case from a historical reference point. And those names not, not, might, not, might not be immediately familiar to you, but the nations that they were allied to most certainly will ring a bell. You ever heard of a little town called Sodom or another city called Gomorrah? In verse 14, we read of a war that Abraham's cousin Lot gets caught up in unsuspectingly. The war was between a mighty ruler at the time, and I'm going to butcher this name, Cheder Loamar, he was the king of Elam, and he had some allies of his own. But opposing this mighty ruler was a series of cities and their rulers who had banded together in hopes of subduing Chedarlamar and throwing off the yoke of his taxes upon them. Among those nations who wanted to rebel was the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboam. So each one of those cities had for 12 years been giving tribute to Chedarmalar, blah, 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 okay? They'd been giving him money, and he was, they were tired of doing it. And so they rebelled against him. And we read in chapter 14 that Lot got caught up in this. He didn't know what was going on, and he got captured by the army of this man whose name I can't pronounce. And he was taken into captive, and Abraham had to come and release him from those bonds. Now when Hosea refers to Adma and Zeboim, he says he's not going to... You're not going to be utterly cut off like they will be. There's such literary precision here. Because what he's saying is, what you have done is you have allied yourself with Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were destroyed. But you're not Sodom and Gomorrah. Your problem is your allegiance to the wrong people. And I'm not going to let you be utterly destroyed like Adma and, and, and Zeboim were. You're not going to be cut off forever, but I am going to let you lose your crown for a while. I am going to make you sit under some tribute for a time so that you will learn how serious your ignorance of me has been. The, Northern's kings, the northern kingdom's error is in aligning themselves with sinners 
And God says, you cannot be aligned with them. By covenant, you are aligned to me. And I love you. So these people will not be extinguished. Though their national and even ethnic structure will not look as it did before, God has a plan for redemption. This is exemplary, not of a God who loves you in an emotional whirlwind. God's love is not reckless or stoked on by the flames of circumstance in any way. It is exemplary of the much more valuable, steadfast love of Yahweh towards his covenant people. A love that will always be governed by truth and by promise. A love that's not contingent on our fickle obedience, but finds its sturdy foundation in the decrees of the Almighty God and ultimately in the perfection perfection of Jesus' obedience to the law. I will love you, period, says Yahweh to his people. What is salvation? It is God declaring, though you hated me, I'm going to love you. And you will love me. You don't right now, but I'm about to give you the power to do so. Though you are a rebel against me, I'm going to change your heart. And if I didn't change your heart, you would never love me. But my love is enough for both of us. I will teach you to love Yahweh. I will put a heart that is soft in place of the heart that was so hard and stubborn to my truth. So Yahweh cannot give them up, not because they are such a treasure, because they have so much to offer him, but because he is a God who cannot break his promises and he will surely do the things that he says that he will do. The fourth and final point in our text today is found in verses eight through nine and we're almost finished. Here God puts forth the prophetic sign of the Messiah who will one day call God's people back again. Verse 10 and 11, to close out our sermon today. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Who will roar here, friends? The lion, specifically the lion of Judah, will roar. Jesus himself. And when he does, when he proclaims the gospel to the world, then the people who are truly the Lord's, they will come. And yes, they will come trembling because they'll come with a humility of mind seeing that their sin truly has disqualified them from really deserving anything that God has to give to them. They will see that this gift of God's covenantal enduring love is a free gift of grace and it will shake them to their souls. This grace will be irresistible for them. Those whom God calls, he will certainly save. He doesn't say, I will call and some who want to come will come. He says, I will come, call and my people will hear my voice and they will come trembling. And if you are a Christian here today, friend, you've heard that roaring lion. You have heard the gospel preached. And through the work of the Spirit in your heart, you have thought differently about your sin. You've begun to see that there's nothing you can do to pull yourself out of your condition or to climb out of the hole that you dug for yourself. You will know that the Lord Jesus Christ is your one and only Savior. And that if you have hope today, Christian, you have it because of the Son of God. God has not utterly forgotten his people. His covenant keeping will sustain the relationship because his love is enough. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I hope that this expression of God's love for his people has shooken you today. I pray that as you've thought about these things that you've said, wow, 
I have never experienced a love like is being described in God's scripture here. Do you see how this is a love worth holding out for? An exemplary love, a unique and holy love. Don't settle for any other love, friend. Desire the kind of love that God the Father has for God the Son. That is the kind of love that Christ the Son gives to you when you trust in him, when you confess your sin and repent of it, and you trust that Jesus Christ has paid your debt so that you can be made new. The voice that Hosea mentioned is a voice that is resounding throughout the world. It is resounding in this very pulpit right now. Will you hear it? Will you be honest enough with yourself to admit your failure to live a life that shows honor and gratitude to this God who has made you and has already shown you a portion of his love? If God draws you into covenant with himself, you will never love him with the kind of love that he has in store for you. You can't pay him back. You can't catch up to him but you will be loved by a God whose care and affection cannot be matched by anything else that you could possibly imagine. Will you put your trust in him today? I I hope that you will. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this day and I ask Lord Jesus that you in your great mercy would remind us of your love, not just this morning, but every morning of the day. When we wake up and see the sun arise anew, Lord, remind us that that sun represents your willingness to give even sinners life. That you have endured the hardship of being dishonored and disrespectful by men and women who have broken your law and have acted like you're not even there. God, remind us of your enduring love that is especially acute towards the saints. That you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be the substitute for their sins. That the the wrath that we have earned for our sins against you, God, Christ took upon his own shoulders. He suffered them so that justice would be fulfilled and that we might be set free. God, I pray that if there's someone who has made that decision to follow after you today, if you're working in their lives in that way, that they would come and talk to myself or to Ross or to the person who brought them today, that they would be open about that, that they might start to become integrated into this family that they are now part of through your amazing saving power. We love you, Lord God, and we thank you for the ways that you grow us. Even after you save us, you are not finished with us, Lord. We have now become a part of who you are and we will dwell with you and in the house of the Lord forever. Help us, God, to enjoy being in the house. We love you and thank you for all this. In Jesus' perfect name, amen.